Listener production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you're new to the podcast or you need a reminder, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff, which exactly is what we're trying to do with this podcast. We're bringing you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. And today's guest is someone who really knows what's going on. He actually fits two of these boxes. He is part entrepreneur, part expert, and his expertise is not so much on the outside, but on the inside. Professor Matthew Brown is a research professor working primarily on psychological and health aspects of gambling. His main expertise is in research methods and stats. Now, this is also cool. Before coming to the Central Queensland University, he worked in several research organizations, including the CSIRO and one German name that apparently means the Institute for Autonomous Systems. But for a time, he also ran his own commercial construction business. I don't know how many uh, professors of psychology. I've also got a construction background, but we'll find out. Professor, welcome to The Good Oil. Thank you, Scott. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Mate, I really appreciate it. You and I have been engaging on Twitter for quite a while now, just backwards and forwards on, on different things. I've always enjoyed our interactions. And we were kind of, you know, going backwards and forwards about, about investing uh, and, and kind of, I can't remember how the conversation came up, but we're talking about, you know, what, what, what was good investing and bad investing. I said, mate, you're probably closer to good investing than most because uh, Warren Buffett would suggest it's temperament that makes the difference. We know the power of behavioral psychology when it comes to investing. So I reckon... I'm speaking to the right bloke. Before we get into any of that, though, can you give me a quick, well, okay, up front, how do you go from running a commercial construction business to becoming a professor of psychology? <laughs> and are there any others? Is, is, there a hidden, is there a hidden vein of, of research professors that are, that are, uh, that, that are construction guys or, or, or short order cooks or something? What, what am I missing? No, I like to think I'm unique in this respect. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, look, I had a career as a professional researcher. I did my PhD and I, I worked in various um, places of technical um, topics. Uh, and um, I was there at the CSIRO and it was, it was a lovely job. It was, it was fine. Um, but I, I sort of saw this career mapped out in front of me. And, um, and at the same time, my dad um, was running this construction company. He was looking forward to retiring and he, he tempted me to come over to the dark side and scrounge around in the dirt, signing contracts and dealing with tradies and building shit instead of researching stuff. <laughs> and so, and so does, does, does being a, a statistical researcher make you a good construction manager? Does being a construction manager make you a good psychology professor or are they just completely different parallel universes? They're totally parallel um, universes. Um, we did try to move towards a kind of more automated uh, design process. Okay. One, of the, one of the big costs is this, um, you know, the, the, the technical drawings and um, planning mm-hmm. it out, which, which can get um, expensive. And uh, we sort of moved to uh, Autodesk Inventor, which is like a three-dimensional engineering um, technical drawing bit of software. So I was able to use some of my technical skills there. Um, okay. But no, pretty much I had to, to learn it from the ground up. But I was very happy because what 
I did a couple of things. One, I did manage the and, and do the technical drawings for a, a very nice set of stairs at 111 Eagle Street in the Brisbane uh, CBD. <laughs> nice. But I'm uh, particularly glad um, in uh, managing the construction for a renovation to the engineering building at uh, Queensland University of Technology. And I really, oh, go. I really wanted to walk into that building and, and tell those engineers that a psychologist... <laughs> <laughs> They, they close the building and move next door, surely, at that point, wouldn't they? We're, we're, not, we're not staying here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, um, but then, um, no, look, I, I, I made the call that this, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. You really, you really have to love money a lot because it's, you know, it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough job. You've got to work six, out, six days a week and you're working 10 hours a day at least and it's very stressful. You're signing these contracts that are as thick as your arm and you know that the, the principal contractors that you're dealing with will send an army of lawyers after <laughs> you if you stuff up one thing. So who needs that stress? I went back to university and I'm very happy. Very, very good. Uh, now, you talked about the love of money, which is a wonderful opportunity for me to just discreetly and without even anyone noticing segue into the question about your day job or your current role anyway, because you do specialize in the psychology of gambling. And I, I will bring this back to investing, by the way, for some of our listeners who are investors. This is a general podcast. We tend to err on the side of kind of business and the economy and the way things work. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to make a, a completely random comment and let you tell me how wrong I am. I'm going to suggest that maybe the study of gambling is actually just the study of the economy in a, in a very, very microcosmic kind of way. Uh, the idea of how people make decisions of of the things we think about risk and reward, of the way we ha- treat and, and exchange money. Obviously, this is a very specific area and I imagine a lot of your work is spent on the less savoury aspects of gambling or maybe there aren't any unsavoury aspects. So I'll ask you that. Should we just ban gambling outright? Uh no, I I wouldn't be in favour of just banning gambling outright, uh, personally. Uh, but I would be in favour of uh, putting some strong restrictions on the most pernicious types of gambling and the, the ways in which it's it's sold to vulnerable people and encourages them to think that they um, can actually make money from that. So, Matt, we, we hear people say, hey, we're all adults, we've all got our choices, what can possibly be wrong with X. And X can be anything from pornography to drinking to gambling to advertising to whatever. Um, I, won't even, I won't even try and tell you the story. I'll ask you. If we're all adults here and we're all capable of making good decisions and we have a brain and why shouldn't it just be a open side of free-for-all? You want to play the pokies, knock yourself out. You know you're going to lose your money, but if you want to play, it's up to you. You can simply choose not to. You can choose to walk away. Yeah. So what you're outlining there is what you might call the individual choice, hyper-liberal uh, way of thinking about it, which, you know, I have some sympathy for. You know, I spent too much money probably on single malt whiskey. <laughs> there is no such thing as too much money on single malt. Well, <laughs> I, should, I should check the receipts first, but as far as I'm aware, it's not possible to spend too much money on single malt whiskey. But go, let's hypothetically assume it's possible. Keep going. Yeah, so... Um, you know, and I probably drink a little bit too much of that um, that is good for me. And we, we don't want to live in a society where, you know, people who know better than us are, are making all the decisions for us and ensuring that we're optimising every single choice that we make to, to maximise our, our health and well-being. We want to, you know, the, um, freedom and autonomy is a good and, you know, this is something we need to respect as well. On the other hand, um, I think where you draw the line is when... You know, pro- there are products that are intrinsically quite dangerous 
And then on top of that, they are sold and marketed in such a way as to encourage people to develop um, delusional beliefs about them and to separate them from their money. So, you know, most people understand the reasons why we do not um, allow selling of heroin (laughs) during um, the hours of 6 to 8 p.m. on the TV. Um, And it's because of those product safety issues. Um, You know, yes, most of us can make a rational choice and say, hey, I won't do too much of that. It is a bit more-ish, but uh, I'm going to make a very rational decision there. But, you know, a significant minority of us will struggle with that. And uh, I think just throwing it back in the court of the consumer and say, it's all on you. You've got to be the supremely rational agent that never, ever makes a wrong decision, um, you know, when it's not only hurting them, but it's hurting their families and the, the people around them pretty badly sometimes. Yeah. The, uh, I, 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 I'm coming around to a view. I'm, a, I'm an avowed capitalist, uh, as you likely know. But I'm also, I'm also a fan of well-regulated capitalism, not free markets, right? And I think sometimes in <laughs> particularly Twitter where you and I spend too much time, uh, the, the, you know, the idea of the binary, right? You're either a free marketeer or you're a socialist. It's like, you know, there's, there's very little time and space for, for what's in between. But I'm coming around to a view more and more that, you know, more and more money is being made by, in this case, companies, but there is a gambling element to this. And I, again, I won't ask you to stray too far outside your um, area, especially you're welcome to, by the way, upon anything you want, but I also recognise that I don't want to, don't want to misrepresent your, your expertise academically. Um, more and more companies are making an, I'll say an art form, of bringing, you know, meeting us in a situation where we're bringing a knife to a gunfight. Um, everything from the advertising where they subliminally use the, the branding colours to make us think or do something or uh, the, the marketing that just says, you know, branding used to be you can trust this brand and then it became you can like this brand and then it kind of, marketing has turned into this exercise of manipulating us into things that aren't necessarily good for us. And it probably has always been thus to some degree, right? They sold, as you said, they sold cocaine in the newspapers once upon a time. So, you know, we're not, we're not exactly in, a, in new territory. But there is some element of our behavioural biases, you know, our, our evolutionarily retarded brains. I don't mean retarded in a disparaging way. I mean, literally, they are, the development is retarded by evolution. Um, and we get to a point where people who, are, people who are doing these things know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly all of our weaknesses. And so they say, hey, guess what? Come over here. I'm going to use your weaknesses against you and you won't even know it. How much of that is a microcosm of, or a macrocosm, I suppose, of the gambling uh, example? How, how different is it? What, what's that, how, where's the psychology kind of work for us at the moment? Yeah, look, I think the way you articulate it is pretty similar to how I look at it. I mean, um, I, I am like you, I'm fully in, in favour of capitalism and think it's generally fantastic. On the other hand, um, you know, companies don't want to compete with each other on a level playing field and and, and drive each other down to the lowest possible uh, profit margin. What they'd really prefer to do is, is, is have a captive audience um, that really, um, you know, just must have their product no matter whether um, they're having too much of it or not. And don't really have the um, option to easily kind of move away out of their product. And you, you see it with things that have nothing to do with gambling or, or addictive technologies. A lot of people talk about social media that you and I are, are frankly addicted right, to. Right. Um, and, yeah, exactly. and, um, but, you know, even these sort of um, technology ecosystems created by companies like Apple. And I love my iPhone. iPhones, <laughs> their products are a massive good to all of us. But at the same time, they it, there is a massive asymmetry in terms of the way that they can manipulate the relationship and I have relatively little power to do so. Now, 
in the case of of gambling, I suppose it's it's, it's the pointy end of that stick. Now, I will say, by the way, that you, you can have um, perfectly healthy gambling. You know, you can have gambling products that have um, that, that don't cause problems and don't cause harm. Um, for instance, lottery tickets, instant scratch up tickets. I, I, I've done a we, um, we've, we've done analyses with data sets of like sixty thousand people from population representative surveys across Australia, where we can sort of tease out. Um, the um, the actual products to which we can attribute the, the gambling problems and harms. And, and it turns out that things like lotteries and uh, instant scratchets um, are responsible for essentially zero problems in Australia. And whereas you have something like the pokies, which is both dangerous and really prevalent, which is about 55% of, of all gambling problems in Australia, um, and then you, you have other forms like um, sports betting uh, and casino table gaming, which which are sort of equally virulent, equally dangerous, if you like, but fewer people currently play them than the pokies. Um, so together they make up, say, maybe a remaining kind of 30%. Um, yeah, so really it's, it's the devil's in the detail and you see the kinds of products where they, um, like poker machines, are designed to be addictive designed to maximize time on machine and and it doesn't have to be that way you can you can people can have their fun and people can can gamble and it can be done in a way that isn't dangerous but to be honest with you um not only the companies that that run those products but also the government which is dependent on those revenues um and the rest of us who don't have a gambling problem, who benefit because those revenues get spent on good things that, that we like, um, lower taxes is, is one of them, um, we're all sort of involved in this sort of shell game where uh, a small proportion of the population are copying a, a big financial hit um, so others can benefit, including, you know, ordinary people like you and me. Yeah, I, I, speaking of capitalism, one of the things that always gets me made is the... So my, my old man was the president of the England RSL sub-branch and then also, this is in New South Wales, Southern New South Wales, and also the, the RSL club, the licensed club. And uh, it always fascinated me that the drive, even, capitalism is a wonderful thing, but humans need for growth. They, they justify the pokies losses so they can have cheap beer. And it was always that case, if we could get bigger, we could do X. And, and you kind of think, throwing more machines in there just so the beer can be 10 cents a schooner cheaper. It reminds me of the Whitlam song, you know, uh, the blow up the pokies so they can make the trains run on time. And it was just, it's just that sense that you, you talk yourself into. And, I, and these are not for profits, which is remarkable to me. I would absolutely get, well, I wouldn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily justify it, but you understand the profit motive sometimes. When a not-for-profit licensed club, like, you know, I, I can name a dozen of I won't, um, decides to throw a whole lot of pokies and things so they can get bigger so that they can and they convince themselves that putting on a bus for the pensioners or or you know a, a cheap bistro meal or, or a schooner that's you know a dollar cheaper than the local pub is somehow a justified good is that is that the other side of this problem the the justification from both perspectives yeah i mean um i think economists sort of talk about it in terms of externalities if you if you externalize the costs um, to in, in the case of gambling, to some some people, some other people, and then you can reap the benefits in terms of cheaper beer and be able to sponsor the local footy team, and you get better facilities. All of these good things that we all get to enjoy, then it's a very tempting proposition. So it's a little bit like um, you know carbon um, yeah, um, based um, generation. If you externalize the cost of the environment, it's very cheap and very tempting. Let me let me ask you. Uh, so, what what I love about your answer before about the types of gambling is, I love, I, I really love the the, the science based, the evidence based 
approach you've taken? Because I've got, I've not heard my, my fault. I'm not that well read. Uh, I've not heard the the difference between, as you say, the lotteries and the, and, and the scratches versus, say, the pokies. In terms of gambling, you kind of think of gambling as this generic thing. I know everyone knows it's not, but in terms of is gambling good or bad, or is it causing problems or not? And it sounds to me, I don't, I don't think I've heard anybody in the pro or anti gambling groups say let's do this but not that because there is no evidence of harm. I think that's fascinating. Can you maybe, to the extent you've done either the research or you can make a, a decent supposition or you're prepared, as I said, to, to, to you know, make, a, make a guess, why is it that the pokies are addictive and the, the lotteries are not? What, what is it that, frankly, I suppose what I'm asking is, what should we look out for? What, what are some of the kind of key hallmarks you're like, that's why that thing gets you or that's why that thing doesn't? At the end of the day, you're putting a couple of dollars down, you're hoping to win the jackpot or you know, either the pokey jackpot or the, the jackpot lottery or something. At, at their face, they are you know, ridiculously stupid odds of ever getting back your money. Uh, you know, you can make a very clear argument they're the same thing. Why are they not? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Yeah, there's been a lot of research into what they call the structural features of the different products that lead some of them to be addictive uh, and others less so. Probably one of the, probably the biggest one is whether or not the gambling is continuous or not. So if it's con- so, so the thing about the pokies is 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 you go in there, you sit yourself down, and you get into that state of flow. Um, where, you know, the, the lights are going off, the sounds are playing, you're pressing the button again and again and again. And what you're getting delivered to you is a set of um, random uh, rewards, um, but basically rewards of a random size delivered on a random schedule. And you mentioned evolutionary psychology before and how we are basically monkeys stumbling about around in this technological utopia. And, you know, that is it in a nutshell. We, I mean... Um, I'm a big fan of evolutionary psychology. And, you know, we always should keep in mind that our brains are there for a purpose. Our brains evolved in in order to control our bodies, to get out there in the world, um, find resources, get those resources, um, things that we perceive as valuable, things we perceive as as good for us, um, fitness enhancing, and and get them and hoard them, consume them, and, and then have a lot of children. Now... We are very flexible, and you know, in terms of what we perceive as being a reward, um, and we are able to say, okay, you know, we're money or those little coins or whatever, whatever the credits are that's been flashed up there. We're very good learners. We've learned that that's the reward, and we are also evolutionarily adapted to be persistent. Because when you're out there foraging out in the real world, you could be hunting or looking for digging up roots, whatever, you're going to have to be, keep, keep trying it. You know, you're not going to find the, the, the bison first, first chance you get. Sometimes you'll stumble on a massive hoard of, uh, of, of, of food or whatever. Sometimes you'll come up nothing day after day and you have to keep trying. So these kind of random reinforcement schedules and, uh, and, and th- as well as the continuous um, experience is a way of basically tricking what is an adaptive impulse to, to get rewards um, and fool us into basically doing something where we're actually it's actually a losing proposition, but we perceive it in our guts as a winning proposition. I'm curious, mate, you talk about those, those that's like, I love, I love that example. It's fantastic. As you're talking about it, I've heard this link before, but it really brought home the linkage between that style of uh, programming or creation or call it what you want and video games. 
the, the idea of the leveling up in the video games and that kind of the, the random rewards and the loot box type idea for those who don't play games you kind of you get to a certain level you open this loot box and you, you get a, some random reward from one of a thing to a hundred of a thing or, or something really great or terrible or whatever it is um, to what to what sense is are video games now akin to moneyless gambling in their in their in the way they they deal with our brains yeah, I think there's uh, a lot of similarities. Um, the, the really obvious one is that um, recently they've started incorporating um, things like those loot boxes, which are just which are basically straight up gambling <laughs> um, <laughs> into into computer games. Sorry, <coughs> oh, talking too much. Uh, where was I? Um, but yeah, but on the other hand. Uh, yeah, computer games generally, uh, you know, they're fun because they are a simulation of that <laughs> problem-solving, resource-getting, le- leveling up um, that, um, that we human beings enjoy. And the thing is, as entertainment activities, we're, we're attracted to stuff that's easy as well, like physically easy, does not require a huge amount of physical or, or cognitive effort. And a good computer game, like a good gambling game, it doesn't ask too much of you. So in terms of us, you know, us, in terms of our behaviour, we, in, in a natural environment, we're wanting to optimise the kind of, you know, the minimal effort expended for, for positive gains and a positive amount of achievement gained. Um, and if you have a choice between doing something that's really sort of easy cognitively and physically, it could be challenging, but just the right amount of challenging. Um, gambling isn't really challenging at all, most most types of gambling. You have skill-based gambling, by the way, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's the thing. You know, um, computer games also deliver those random rewards and do encourage persistence as well. Yeah. So, so from, from, a, from a, I guess, again, thinking about your, your research in the psychology of gambling, and the harm that's being done or where it's being done. Maybe maybe I'll go back to that original question I asked you, you know, would you ban gambling outright? Maybe I can ask a different question of where is the right place to think about when we should level the playing field for us poor monkeys in... Uh, monkeys in shoes was a phrase I heard the other day. I can't remember where I heard that one. I, I really like that one. It's monkeys in shoes. Um, if we're just monkeys in shoes, then any time we're having our evolutionary biology used against us, we are almost by definition at a disadvantage because our rational brains can't overcome that. And, and there's part of me that thinks, well, anytime it's being done, we are literally being taken advantage of it as a business model and as a, as a regulatory model. That feels pretty rugged to me. At the same time, as you say, if a video game is kind of costless gambling or, or, or you know, costless enjoyment, then okay, well, we haven't, we're being taken for a ride, but it's a fun ride. And we don't mind the ride and we don't lose anything other than maybe some sleep because we're still playing at 3 a.m. because we can't quite stop. Where do you, how do you think about the right, and I don't, you know, I know you're not a regulator or even necessarily a policy guy outright, but where, where do we think about putting some of those rules around how much can I be taken advantage of and in what ways before someone says, actually, you know what, that's pretty crappy, guys. You've got to stop doing that. Yeah, that's a good, good question. And for me, I would say that it's a matter of thinking, well, what is a reasonable price to pay for what is an entertainment experience? Yeah, and um, you know, because because that's how it's marketed, that's how it's sold, that's how it's presented. This is this is an entertainment experience. You shouldn't expect to win money. Um, you just what we are offering is the opportunity to while away an hour or two, have a nice time, or have a bit of a flutter on a on a on some sort of bet. Um, so 
in that sense, it's similar to going to watch the movies or going out for, you know, to go out to a nice restaurant or something like that. And um, so I would set that as the benchmark. If like, what, what, what is the reasonable price? And when you see somebody who is, is on a very average income, but is, is spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a particular night for, for a few hours um, of this experience, to the extent that they can't pay the rent or, or other bills, then that's just not a, that's not a reasonable um, entertainment experience to be selling. You do a great podcast, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, but uh, just, just write down Decoding the Gurus, listeners. You'll, you'll want to check that out as, as we talk. I will get to that in a second, Matt. Um, I want to talk to you about investing uh, because you're not an investment advisor, you're not a financial advisor, so I'm not going to ask you to do any of that, but... I have there's a there's a, a really long uh, history of investors trying to say that's gambling, but this is investing, and therefore that's bad, and this is good. You know, we, we invest, we don't gamble, and I think that's a useful approach at, at at a surface level for most people, because you get to say to them, look, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do something with hundred bucks, invest it for some sort of positive future expected gain, rather than throwing a hundred bucks on the dogs, right? As as a as a financial decision, whether you get more fun out of it, as you just said, is a different question. But you know, backing backing the fifth at, at you know in Randwick or or putting a hundred bucks in an ETF is probably it's probably an easier financial decision for most people to make. But I think it's also misleading because it implies investing is a no loss, no risk exercise. And even uh, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner in crime at Berkshire Hathaway, talks about the fact they are simply looking for mispriced bets. That they are, you know, looking for a looking for a horse with was it three chance in, uh, three to two chance of winning that pays two to one. They they just want a a mispriced future value outcome. Uh, and that's our job as investors to say if I buy shares in Woolies at thirty five dollars. Do I think they're going to be worth more or less or the same? And we can't know for sure. So we're handicapping the odds. We are thinking about probabilities. We are trying to work out future expected values. And then on the other hand, there is straight out gambling and investing. Every hot stock on every internet chat forum, every cool latest new big thing. Um, I know you keep an eye on the on the financial markets a little bit. Um, how do, where, where do you see those crossing over uh, in terms of the gambling bug that, that takes hold in the investing markets? Yeah, I think it's a it's just a fascinating topic, and the the history of um, research into this area, by the way, has has looked at investing and gambling at, at the same time. And, and and as you say, the way us humans evaluate risk and rewards is um, is deeply irrational, frankly, and it is a whole fascinating topic in itself. I mean, there there, there is a reason why insurance companies exist, um, even though they they uh, present negative expected value. Um, and be- because we are human beings that um, think about risk like that. Um, and, you know, I myself, I've, I've learned a lot about psychology, to be honest, and myself by managing my own little personal suite of investments. Yeah. And, um, you know, even armed with all of the theoretical knowledge about uh, the psychology of, of, of this and the emotions that are involved and so on, I'm just as susceptible to <laughs> to um, the the issues as anyone. So it's I think it's really important. I, I know that you like to emphasise this too, but it is super important to have that degree of self awareness um, to be able to step back and think: How am I responding to this situation um, emotionally, and and how might that 
be leading me to maybe make poorer decisions. Um, again, as you say, there isn't really a fundamental difference between gambling and investing. Um, the, the only technical difference is, of course, the negative expected value with most forms of gambling. Um, and by the way, there are professional gamblers who can, conf- yeah, who confidently can uh, work with a positive um, expected value, and they operate in a very similar manner to other types of investors, yeah, where they spread out their um, bets or investments over a wide range. They make, they make thousands and thousands and thousands of wages and they play the odds. Um, pretty similar to how um, a, a good investor is encouraged to diversify their portfolio, right, to, to reduce that um, variability. You will know this, but uh, I, was, I, I was blown away. This is oh, 20 years ago. Blown away, we had. I was working at a company, and the company decided. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how wisely to bring a professional, in, a gambler, in to talk to us about the Melbourne, Melbourne Cup. It was Melbourne Cup day, so they paid some bloke to come in and tell us about how they do it. And you know, when you when you kind of don't know this stuff, you assume that they, they work out which horse is going to win. They just bet on that horse, and if it's going to win, it wins and it does really well. And this guy was saying, no, I, I every every time I bet, I bet I normally back normally every single horse in the race, and I back it with just varying amounts of money. So I put a large amount of money on the favourite. I put a smaller amount of money on the 100 to 1 chance. And then I spread my bets across so that my expected outcome, to your point, is not I'm going to bet on the winner or I'm going to pick the bet the first three in a trifecta. It's literally I'm going to bet on them all roughly in proportion to the, the chance I think they're going to win if I get a set of odds across the entire race that's in my favour. And it really does, I think, you know, we sort of have this idea of punters being these, you know, big guys take their massive wads of cash, they go on, you know, Kerry Packer style, go throw it on the nose of some Melbourne Cup favourite, walk away, shout the bar. But it is real. I mean, a lot of them lose money as well, of course, but it is a really specific, statistically based approach. Not Can't be done by everyone. You have to know what you're doing and all that kind of stuff. But I was blown away. It just made, makes perfect sense on one level. But I was just, you know, it's not the, it's not the general idea you see. And I wonder if that's true. We watch The Wolf of Wall Street and we, and we hear about, you know, Jordan Belfort and, and we watch Wall Street itself, the movie, and Gordon Yeko. And, and those sort of characters become the, the, the stereotypes for investing. Whereas the, the boring Warren Buffett guy who sits in his, you know, nondescript office in the Midwest of, of the US without a computer screen and just, you know, reads and reads and reads, you're not going to make a movie out of that stuff but that's that's the that's a successful bit it's not exciting but that's a successful bit of of investing and i wonder if that's maybe the the story of what we get presented with and how we think about them are very different based on just what you see in, in media yeah yeah i think so and i think i think we have a natural human tendency to want to think about a problem deeply and then come up with a single course of action um, and and then we sort of sort of almost work to convince ourselves of of how good this course of action is because ultimately we only get to do one thing um, in the real world. Um, whereas um, yeah, as you say, investing is a little bit different. You can do a multiplicity of different things simultaneously and and play those odds. But and it's a situation where it is um, it's a highly variable, low information environment where you even the smartest person um, will have you know, relatively little confidence <laughs> that that their decisions are good ones, yeah. So you mentioned before, and I love the fact you said, look, you know, I'm a professor of psychology and I still find myself struggling with the same issues that everyone else does. And so, again, I, I'm not going to ask you about financial advice, but as a, as a professor of psychology, what are the things that you know about us as humans, yourself specifically, us as humans, and how do you go about trying to strip back the or, or to, to overcome the biology that threatens to... Uh, you know, throw us off a cliff when we should be actually staying the course? Yeah. Um, so for me, very personally, um, I guess what I 
um, try to do is firstly not take too much credit for any wins that I might be having because I have to re- explicitly remind myself that there was luck involved in, in, in everything. Um, and so, because it's easy to convince yourself that you have um, a certain degree of intuition or expertise or whatever that you don't actually have. Um, because the reason why you've got to maintain that kind of humility is that if you, if you attribute those successes, whatever they are, to, to your own, uh, um, you know, amazing qualities, then you're going to be encouraged to take um, bigger risks and double down on risks when, when you really shouldn't. Uh, and, and, the, and the flip side of it, too, of course, is that when things don't work out, which is not to to panic. Um, And the other interesting thing about um, um, stock market or just investing generally is that the the returns kind of play out over time. And that's that's an interesting thing, too. So so human beings, we always we have a natural preference for for um, rewards that come sooner rather than later. Um, uh, and, And we're conditioned to uh, actually be more highly reinforced by rewards that, that come quickly. Um, it's no coincidence, again, to, with the gambling, that the more addictive forms of gambling are the ones which tell you whether or not you've won or lost straight away. Um, one, ones like lottery tickets where you have to wait, uh, it's not. It's not quite as reinforcing. Yeah. Hey, I want to ask you a quick question actually about gambling again. I, I'm going to skip back because just as you're saying, as you're saying, waiting for it. I'm, I'm wondering, and I don't, again, I don't want to put you on spot. You're not comfortable with, but I'm thinking about Kino. Now, for those who don't know, Kino, Kino is is I'm going to I'm going to butcher it. It's, it's a lottery that's run every two and a half minutes, and so it's kind of like this this hybrid of the two. You talk about the lights, and you talked about the ability to kind of play regularly. It's not exactly press, 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 press like you can play in the pokies, but it's not buy a ticket, wait for a week, or wait for Monday night's draw, or or whatever. Um, it's on the big screen. It's got the flashing lights. It's got the coming closing soon. Where either in terms of just the psychology of it, or the harm, or the the, the kind of continuum of of uh, harmfulness or, or, or addictiveness, whatever it is. Where would Kino sit in your experience? Do, do you do you have the research, or do you have a sense? Yeah. Um, look, it, it sits somewhere in between, which is which would probably be your intuition. Which it, it, it has it has those. It's it's basically a lottery, but it, it's been pushed towards being more of a continuous kind of game. Um, in, in other countries like Canada, their equivalent of poker machines is they call them video lottery terminals because <laughs> technically, <laughs> they're, <laughs> technically they're actually yeah. lotteries, but mm-hmm. they've been modified to essentially function in a very right. similar way to pokies. Yeah. Okay, Let, let's let's move on. I want to ask you about your podcast. You do a podcast called Decoding the Gurus. And I've listened to a lot of those podcasts. They are spectacular tours de force through a whole lot of really cool stuff. Well, actually really uncool stuff, but you 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 make you make the you make the examination of it quite cool. And largely this is about picking those people who seem to have amassed a guru style following among viewers, listeners, readers. They tend to be certain types of, of people who have managed to convince a whole lot of people to listen to them, follow them, believe that black is white and 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 really mess with their heads. And I'm fascinated. I, I, it, listeners, just honestly, do, do yourself a favor. Look up Decoding the Gurus, the podcast itself, because it's worth doing. But, Matt, I guess I'm curious from a 
Maybe you can just give us a quick summary of, of, of what, what fascinates you about them. Why are these people gurus? Again, I know there's, you know, you do, do hours of this on the, on the actual podcast itself, but what is it about them? What is it about gurus? What is it about what, how, and why they do what they do? Um, that, that requires them to be decoded. What, what is it that's, that's kind of, I will say, leading people astray? They, they would argue they're not leading people astray. They're being shown the truth, and maybe that's in itself the very, the very example that we need. But what's going on there? Yeah, well... <sighs> We fell into this because um, we noticed the same thing. We just we saw these characters that were out there that had were inspiring these extremely loyal followings. People mm-hmm. who um, thought that these particular figures just had the answer for everything. That that, that they had this <laughs> degree of insight, this this degree of intelligence. Were just like these polymaths who who understood everything that was going on in the world and. In this, you know, baffling modern world that we find ourselves in, they were like someone you could go to, to and they, who would have a take on everything and, and guide you as to what was right, what was wrong, how to think about this, what you should worry about, and so on. Um, now, in many ways, they were functioning like in the olden days, the, the spiritual gurus, the you good old-fashioned religious guru who might be preaching on a street corner or might develop a cult around them. But these guys, they're not generally um, super spiritual or, or religious. In fact, they present themselves as very logical, very rational, very scientific, very academic um, in, in their analysis. So um, th- there's a thing on the internet which um, <laughs> you would know from being on Twitter, which they call um, moral virtue signaling, right? Yeah, people that are virtue signaling are like sending this signal to other people that they're a really good person because they've got the right on opinions and they, they care about the right things. And, and, and if you don't agree with them, then you're a bad person. Now, um, we had a philosopher on who's, who described these gurus um, as doing intellectual virtue signaling. So, the, so these guys present all of the intellectual virtues, very considered, very thoughtful, very learned, and they have the secret to um, figure out what's going on in the world. So how are they different, though? So that, that's, that's, a great, that's a great summary, but that is every false prophet, but also every, I want to say real prophet, because that kind of gets, muddies the waters, but every, you know, a Socrates or a Plato, you know, to some degree, we revere one lot and we... We call out the others and we say, well, yes, you know, you're both considered or you both, you both show that you're considered and you both think you have the answers and you both share that to your followers and you've both gained some sort of, I will say, cult following, although I think it's probably unfair to say if uh, Aristotle and um, Socrates and Plato, but um, that's, uh, where is, what, what different, or does anything different, are they the same? Or if, and if they're not, what differentiates them? Yeah, I mean, and that's the challenge. They're, they're hard to tell apart from the real thing. And uh, this is why I think they're enjoying so much success in this interconnected social media world that we've built for ourselves because they can build an audience uh, directly. They don't have to go through editors. They don't have to go through uh, a network or or whatever. Um, And how to tell the difference? Well, it's difficult. On on one hand, you can... One way to tell is it's the most difficult way, really, is if you actually know something about the topic that they purport to be an expert on. So... (laughs) If you, for instance, 
you know, happened to be a, a professor of virology mm. and you were listening to, say, uh, a figure like Brett Weinstein uh, talking about ivermectin and how the, the vaccines are all very bad for you, then yes. you would you would know that they were talking bullshit because you, you could tell that they were simply bullshit. making yeah. it up. But for the rest of us who aren't lucky enough to be professors of virology, <laughs> it, it's a little bit more difficult. Um yeah. Because they, on the surface, they use the right words. They they generally have a very professorial tone. They're extremely eloquent, far more eloquent than me. Um, and they, they sound like somebody you should be trusting. Um, so that, in fact, I think is is the way you need to spot them. They, they go a little bit too hard in terms of acting the role of someone authoritative rather than just being it. I've likened it to the, the, the guy that played the, the president on the West Wing. <laughs> he, 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 he did a great job, right? But he was more presidential than any real president in the That's history true. of the United States, That's right? <laughs> so, um, so one of the ways in which that they can pretend or act like mm-hmm. somebody mm-hmm. who has you know, genuine expertise, genuine special insight, is, is the use of something we call pseudo-profound bullshit. <laughs> and and that that is using needlessly technical terms, you yeah. know, you, you know, um, using these elaborate metaphors, these elaborate analogies, um, um, acronyms, and so on. So if if you notice somebody using unnecessarily complicated language <laughs> and and expressing things in such a way that where. It's the language is designed to impress rather than to communicate. Then that's an example of a red flag. And dear listener, if that sounds like the finance industry to you, you're absolutely spot on because Matt is not that far away from describing most people who would would like to be seen to be experts and and maybe make it too hard for you to do possibly yourself because they know all the big words. Um, What is behind this from the guru's own perspectives? Is it... it uh, and they're always different, of course. Um, I'm tempted to think there are some really, really, really super smart people running a massive fraud on the on the you know population of America or Australia or the world or whatever. Others are just blowhards who like to believe their own. We'll use the word use a few times. Believe their own bullshit and want to just show they are clever and have influence. Some are just on some sort of you know uh, crusade to to see the world in their own image or the way they'd like it to be. How, how much of this is is calculated? Deception. How much of this is just people for their own self-importance who just get on this gravy train of of, of dopamine and can't get off because people love them so much? Yeah, I. That's a, a really difficult question. It's one that we think about a lot because um, sometimes you can't. You go, is this person for real? Like they they must they must be lying. I I think. I think it's good to make an analogy with someone like Donald Trump, just because everyone knows the guy and. And, him, yeah, yeah and, and, and they know his personality. <laughs> and, and if you ask yourself, does, does Trump deliberately lie all the time? Is he setting out to deceive people? Or does he really believe the stuff that he's coming up with on the spur of the moment, that, that he's really, you know, God's gift to everything and, and so on? And I think the truth is, is that um, it, it's, it, it's, it's more that someone like Donald Trump, who, who is narcissistic in the same way that a lot of our gurus are, they, they kind of have a disregard for the truth. It's not so much that they're setting out to lie and deceive necessarily, but for them, they are kind of like the centre of the universe and they, they feel that um, being the, the centre of attention and everybody listening to them um, and, and them being the smartest person in the world, that sort of feels right to them, I think. 
it reminds me, I don't want to get political for its own sake, but <clears throat> I'm reminded of the book that was written about Scott Morrison uh, towards the end, his prime ministership, where the, the, the author makes the point that he, you know, he moves on so quickly, and even even the contradictions, he he's not lying because in the moment he believes everything he says, and there's that sense of before and after. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know what he might think. I'm not even sure if that supposition is right. By the way, but there was just that sense that in the moment he believes it's true, so he says what he thinks is true, and then he would say something different or he'd be demonstrably you know fact checked as a lie. But that sense of you know the the author was saying, I don't think he thinks he genuinely doesn't think he's a liar because he genuinely believes what he says when he says it. And then just moves on. Is is I don't want to I don't want to get political because you know just it's just a dangerous place to go with listeners and other things. But it strikes me the same kind of thing going on. That idea of if I just say it and believe it, and then enough people agree with me, then they're reinforcing the fact that what I said must have been true. And maybe it's true because you, you lied about it, but then it becomes truth because enough people believe it and tell you you're right. I, I don't know. It's a strange strange old world. No, no. It's I, I think that's a, that sounds like a decent example as well. I mean. Like as as humans, we're we're not primarily interested with the truth. Like it's like 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 being true is become trendy, right? Like yeah. like like science is good. We we should all be you know seek mm-hmm. you know seeking the truth, trying to figure out what's real and so on. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what communication was used for in our evolutionary past, it was for status seeking, what they call sexual selection, right? Which is which right. is which okay. is enhancing your prestige. Enhancing mm-hmm. your role, um, basically doing politics, doing gossip, and, and yeah, managing yeah. a yeah. social environment. What's true and what's not true is sometimes mm-hmm. relevant, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's not it's not the most important thing actually from an evolutionary point of view. So um, I guess we shouldn't be too surprised, and we also know that like grandiose narcissists, which I think many of our <laughs> gurus are, they often do very well in society. Like there is a power to it because they project confidence. They, they, they project certainty. And when we see confidence, we see certainty, we think, well, that person clearly knows what they're doing. I'll, I'll, I'll follow them. And a bit of reassurance. So I'm, I'm reminded of the, the shop assistants. Oh, so you look great in that jacket. Oh, do I? Thank you. That's, that's, that's wonderful to know. I'll, I'll buy the jacket. There, there's a lot, of, a lot to be said of, of both confidence and then, and then reassuring people or giving them what they want to hear, whether you do it deliberately or not. Maybe, maybe that creates its own power. The people who give the simple, honest, straightforward answers that resonate with us, even if they're completely untrue, just you know, it just, it just makes makes perfect sense. Maybe that's what Talkback Radio is built on. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Um, <laughs> well, well, this is yeah, this, this is one of the problems with with the uh, online communication sphere, which is that the people that actually know stuff are not necessarily very good at communication, and they're not really very interested in buttering people up or flattering them. So so if you do make that your focus of attention to to flatter your audience's intelligence, let them know that, that they are the good ones and they know what's really going on, perhaps in a slightly conspiratorial sense, um, then <laughs> um, people respond to that. Yeah. What is it, last question about this, what is it about our psychology or our circumstances that makes us so vulnerable to believing utter crap. Um, the the ivermectin one is a fantastic example, right? I can almost understand, not really, but I can almost understand the the person who says this should be, you know, we had we had uh, you know members of parliament who were famous saying, well, of course it should, we should use it. Um, uh, thankfully, a, a former member of parliament, uh, I say that as a former resident of his electorate, um, you know, ivermectin was supposed to be great for us. I, I, again, assuming that he's neither the He's neither the guru in that sense. He's following someone else's guruness. He's, he's, he's the follower. He has a megaphone that he then spreads it. But then he believes that other people believe him because he believe it because he said it. What is it that makes us vulnerable to believing that crap? 
Oh, gee. Um, we probably need another hour to get into. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, so I can't, I can't go into all of the, the reasons, I think, but, but I, I could go into probably one or two of the big ones. And okay. I, 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 I think one of the biggest ones is the, is, uh, we, we all probably have a bit of a tendency towards conspiratorial narratives. Like we, we have a sneaking feeling um, and rightly so, that other people don't want what's best for us and other people might be wanting to pull the wool over our eyes and are selling us, um, you know, a, a bridge a bridge over the Hudson or whatever the saying is. Um, so if you think about these narratives, and it could be that, you know, climate change is all of a hoax, you know, that they're just trying to find way, new ways to tax you because they want to make you poor. The World Economic Forum is, is, is a way to create a one-world government and oppress you. Um, really, the doctors want to make you sick um, and um, get you to... Comp- Drug companies are all... Yeah, you know. And, you know, there is an element of truth in, in most conspiracy theories. Like, you should be mistrustful of powerful and rich people. Pharmaceutical <laughs> companies don't always have your best interests at heart. Um, and, you know, sometimes there is government overreach. Mm-hmm. So, yep, um, yep. but we are probably irrationally conspiratorial. And I think the appeal of things like ivermectin, they, they really rely on this is the thing they don't want you to know about. And, and I've found out about it, and I'm going to share it with you. Is that evolution as well? Is, is there, I mean, you talk about the communication used for, for social selection. Is, is that the other side of the same thing, that the, the, the very idea that someone else is trying to take your mate or, or be more impressive or somehow get one over on you? Is it, does it go back that far as well, or am I, am I trying to draw two strings together that don't belong? I'd have to think about that a little bit. I mean, part of it is just that um, I think the intrinsic distrust. You can think about there's a bit of an arms race. If you want to manipulate other people and and get them to 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 do what you want them to do, it, it could be just the person at the shop who wants you to buy the jacket. It's not necessarily terribly sinister. Um, then you're going to be lying to them to one degree or another. You don't really look that good in that jacket, Scott. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so, so it, it's so you know. So it's in your interest to be My always God, on, yeah. always on guard. Is this yeah. person trying to trick me? Are they trying to pull? You know, do they really love me as much as they say they do? Um, or or um, so. I think that because of that arms race, um, we, we have two things going on. Um, one is, it's, it's like a dilemma. We, we need to trust people. We need to find some people who knows what's going on. Like, ultimately, we need to decide whether or not to take a vaccine or take ivermectin. Um, on the other hand, we are also continually fearful of being tricked and taken advantage of. So um, I think that's kind of what we're seeing. You've made me much less secure. Thank you. I, I'm now going to go out of this podcast. Very insecure. Uh, trusting everything, including when I go and see my wife later. Does she really love me as much as she does? I mean, <laughs> uh, Matt, let, let, let's finish off with our four. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you. I will uh, share some contact or some follow details uh, for Matt in a minute. But before we do that, um, let's go to our four favorite uh, questions that our listeners love hearing the answer to. Uh, speaking of ceilings, I've stolen these from other podcasts as well. So full, full disclosure there. Um, I'm assuming you spend a lot of time with your nose in academic books and papers, but what are you watching and reading at the moment? Or, or streaming, listening to? What, what's got your attention? Uh, well, actually, at the moment, I've been going on a, a World War One history dive. Yeah, I've been um, re- um, listening to, actually, on, um, uh, you know, on, on, on um, actually, YouTube is, is how I'm listening to it. And what is it called? It is called... Um, it's called, let's just call, simply called World War One. 
by what's the author? G'day listeners, Scott Phillips here. A quick short note, uh, Matt's audio uh, went on the blink from this point forward. So we're going to use the Zoom audio that we recorded as a backup. You'll still be able to hear it in perfectly good quality. Just there will be a change. You'll notice that. But uh, otherwise, enjoy the rest of the interview. It's a cracker. I'll have to, I'll have, I'll have to tell you the name of the author. Oh, here we are. Yeah. William Philpott. So, um, William yeah. Philpott. So okay. it's just a deep dive. So I'm very interested in um, in that, um, the the build-up to the war, the, the, the way the diplomacy failed and so on. Um, so there's another great podcast, which is called When Diplomacy Fails by a young Irish guy. Who um, he does a deep dive into the diplomacy prior to World War One that I'm enjoying as well. Fascinating. I will check that out. I I, I do uh, I do like some of that stuff. Uh, the odd line about uh, failing learning from history is always uppermost in my mind. So uh, hopefully some people listening and, and paying attention to that. Um, obviously you spend a lot of time with your uh, mind around psychology and gambling in particular. But what trends are you watching? It can be about what you do as your day job, what's happening in the world, uh, what's happening in society, the economy. What, what, what do you kind of get your eye on? Is something that's just interesting, grabbing your attention? Uh, it can be good, it can be bad, it can be just just straight up interesting. What's what's uh, what's grabbing your attention? <laughs> I have to say it's the it's the war in Ukraine that I'm I've been obsessive about and I've I've never been particularly interested in um things like logistics or military um operations. But I have to admit I've become obsessive about it to to a very large degree. And I think the reason is is that I rightly or wrongly I kind of see it as a as as a test of the of the international liberal order that we've had in place um kind of since World War Two and Kind of relatedly, the the kind of sphere of influence, empire building, balance of power type philosophy that existed around World War One, um, and it, uh, in in which these great powers would just gobble up little little lands, little peoples, um, without any regard to what to what the smaller countries wanted, um, and of course it ended uh, disastrously. Um, so I, I, that's been very much on my mind, and I kind of hope that um, the the world, the, 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 the democratic Western world manages to um, overcome that challenge. I'm not uh, much of an Elon Musk fan. I have to say I'm impressed with what he's done business-wise. I'm not entirely sure about his uh, some, of the, some of the other parts of his character, uh, but he put a Twitter poll out asking people on Twitter whether there was a vote that said that uh, Russia and annex parts of Ukraine, whether that should be enough. And I just thought it was an interesting question to ask given what we know about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. It's also interesting how, <clears throat> if you think about the the where power intersects or overlaps, how much you can get away with just by caring less than the other guy. You know, when you're prepared to, and we've seen this so many times through wars around the world. Again, I'm no, absolutely no expert. You know far about more this than I do. But just that idea of you're prepared to, to sacrifice more lives than the other guy, or even even in Vietnam more recently, the number of the number of Americans and Australians killed was tiny compared to the number of North Vietnamese that died. But they were simply prepared to put more human fodder into, and I, I use that term deliberately but not and not disrespectfully, into the war to the point where you know the, the 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 ability or the the willingness um, of of one power to lose more people lives money whatever um, it, it literally is that the party that's prepared to lose more that actually has you know a, a disproportionate ability to continue to wage that war yeah and we see Putin leveraging that in terms of the nuclear brinksmanship and and threats that he's orienting towards the west he knows full well that he is willing to countenance greater risks than and probably many people in the West. But on the, by the same token, um, one of the heartening things we've seen is that when 
um, uh, people like the Ukrainians are, are fighting for their homeland and they're fighting against uh, an invader that is destroying their cities and um, they're committing numerous war crimes, then, then that inculcates a willingness to suffer tremendously. And I don't think the kind of coercive control that uh, autocracy like Putin has cobbled together is really a match for that kind of thing, which is good. That's to true. That's true. I, I desperately hope you're right. Mate, uh, you've, you've made a, a working life with a short gap uh, out of uh, spending uh, your time and, and interest in the academic world. What advice would you give someone who is considering a job in research, in academia, in universities, uh, in, in the, the more noble fields of, of expanding human knowledge? Ah, um, well, for a young person, um, well, for a young person, I'd say, first of all, um, you know, start off studying stuff that you're interested in, that you like. Um, and this is true for undergraduate study or even getting into postgraduate stuff. But at the same time, keep in mind, what is what does the world need from you? Um, you know, don't be too solipsistic about it. Don't just indulge your interests. And, you know, there's some bad advice that's given, which is just follow your passion and don't, don't listen to what the world's telling you. Just, just barrel ahead. But no, um, you know, research is about solving real world problems and questions that actually matter to people. Um, so keep that in mind as well and try to find that sweet spot where you've got the stuff that you're passionate about, the stuff that you're good at. Um, and the things that people need you to do. And if you can find that sweet spot, um, yeah, you, you should be golden. Excellent, excellent advice. My last question, my favorite question. Uh, I'm an optimist by nature. I sense you might be, although maybe you'll tell me otherwise. What are you optimistic about? Oh, um, that's weird. Because uh, I am an optimist by nature, definitely. <laughs> I, I, I feel excellent. like everything is going to get sorted out. We're going we're gonna to figure out climate change. I'm super happy that solar panels are getting cheap now. And I, I feel like we are going to figure these problems out. Um, I'm optimistic about Australia. I think I, I think the more I look overseas and the more I, I, I look at the kind of social problems and culture wars that happen elsewhere, I, you know, I have to admit I feel a sneaking sense of national pride, which is not something I think is cool or as a young person would have <laughs> said without cringing, certainly. But, you know, I think, I think in terms of uh, a, a kind of a, a relatively um, you know, happy, harmonious place where, where uh, we have a, a multicultural society and getting that balance right between, like you said, well-regulated capitalism, like the, the, the right amount of regulations. You know, sometimes we probably you know, have too many regulations. <laughs> Um, and, you know, just providing a place where um, people can, um, you know, prosper and flourish. Um, so I, I feel like we can keep doing it and hopefully more places around the world will be similar. Mate, oh, we talked about your podcast, Decoding the Gurus. I hope our listeners all subscribe after this conversation is finished. How else can people stay in touch with you, whether it's social media or, or any other way? If they want to kind of keep keep tabs on what you're doing and what you're thinking and, and what you're sharing, where can they go? Well, I have a professional account on Twitter, um, but I have a highly unprofessional account, which is <laughs> <laughs> love it. Which is which is under a pseudonym, which is an open secret, and that it's me. Which right. is, I, I, but I'll tell your viewers the secret, which is it's Ar okay. Arthur C. Dent. Okay. Like this is after Arthur Dent uh, from the Hitchhiker's yes. Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> yes. But Arthur Dent was taken, so it's Arthur C. Dent. Right. Okay. Very good. Arthur C. Dent. Excellent. And that's the best place to hear your musings and see what's going on in your world. Absolutely. Well, I know him as Arthur C. Dent on Twitter, but the world knows him, thankfully, as the Professor of Psychology at Central Queensland University. He is Professor Matthew Brown. Thank you for joining us on The Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. This is great. 
This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.